We just missed you because uh, my wonderful producer for the for the book, Betsy uh, Schuller, lives in New York, and uh, and uh, she brought me to you, and we were so hoping to come and see you at your Times Square studio. Uh, but uh, the dinners were very expensive, and the hotels weren't cheap either. And it took the next <laughs> couple of days uh, because that's really what it is. You see, I'm I'm uh, I'm not a celebrity. I'm not a star. I am who I am, and I've written my. St- 40-year Hollywood history. Welcome to Entrepreneur Struggle, where we talk to entrepreneurs about their journey, creating and scaling up their businesses and freelance operations, while also really focusing on some of the mental and emotional challenges along the way. I'm Chris Colbert, the founder and CEO of the podcast and media company, DCP Entertainment, as well as the podcast and video recording space, Podstream Studios, Times Square. In this conversation, I'm talking to Alex Hyde-White. Alex is an actor who starred in movies like Pretty Woman, Catch Me If You Can, and the controversial Netflix series Monster, The Jeffrey Dahmer Story. But he's also an author of the memoir In the Volume, and he's the founder of the audiobook studio Punch Audio. In this conversation, we talk about the journey he took, going from acting to running an audiobook studio, his tips for combating rejection, and he even shared some stories about one of my favorite comedians of all time, Richard Pryor. But we start with a conversation about Alex Hyde White, the thespian. You know, very rarely in life does something really good happen, you know, personally, hopefully a couple of times, career-wise, maybe. When something good happens that can illuminate a future and you are, you know, uh, sort of sober enough in one sense to recognize it and maybe just lucky and crafty enough to make to take advantage, then, you know, there is a tide in the affairs of men which, taken at the flood, can lead to great fortune. And that moment, for me, I had been an actor for, what was it? It was 2011, and I started in 1980. So I'd been an actor for 30 years already. And, you know, that's 30 years of swings and misses and occasional hits and bunt singles and maybe a double and something off the wall, and then I get in Pretty Woman, and we're all, you know, we go to the All-Star game, and that's 30 years of playing in the big leagues. And I finally got around to this old kind of Hollywood thing, and let people say it to you up up there in New York, is, hey, you got a good voice. You should do something with it. And I go, oh, yeah, okay, like what? Tell you to get lost? So I started, (laughs) you know, I drove to Burbank on a, on, a, on a Friday night for one of these six weeks, a six week uh, VO lessons, uh, um, you know, uh, classes. And I live in Santa Monica, Chris, and, you know, that's like a field trip. And the lady there was wonderful. Cheryl Lynn Carter was a wonderful producer with an ad background. And I, I laid down these voice demos of, you know, Smith Barney. People, you know, I mean, uh, 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 they give you magazine articles, a doctor, a lawyer, a pharmacist. And now be careful how you take that, you know, all of this stuff. And it's a nice little demo. But that work, Chris, goes to people who usually, you know, who are already doing it. But along with it came an entry into a contest, which I won. And that was a contest to find a new narrator for the newly emerging audiobook creation exchange division of Audible, division of Amazon, just starting at the same time that I was, and they needed someone who could do English and American because they had back orders. How am I supposed to know that? I had no idea whatsoever. And, compl- and, it, and, and the result was tangential. It wasn't what I went to, to, to Burbank for. I met the lady 
who, you know, who could, like you, I could come into your studio and facilitate. I didn't know any about this. I was a snob. I didn't even want to do commercials and soap operas. I was happier being broke, just doing TVs and movies. So <laughs> finally, I, I was an actor, you know, and I overcame that, you know, stupid point of view. And went down, you know, I went down uh, uh, lane number two and lane number three opened up and I was right there. And I started, you know, I found that I was good at it. And that's the great bane of an actor is when they're good at something, but they don't have the they don't have enough opportunity to to prove it, to show it. And the whole world opened up. And I realized right from the beginning, right from the beginning, right from the beginning, Chris, that this is not just the job of an actor. This is a job of a producer, of a maybe a small business owner. And within six months of doing single single projects for some producers, they started complaining about having too much work. Poor <laughs> <laughs> them. I might be uh, able to help you with that. And I live in Hollywood, and I know everybody. And I swing. You could swing two cats. On one on one side you get an engineer, and the other side you get an actor. And I just started this collaborative of narrators and engineers, and we started producing books for the people who had the contracts, for the people who would deliver. So, you know, hence we started the supply chain and it was so um, satisfying producing. I like producing. In a 40 year career, I produced two little independent movies and in 12 years, I produced about 500 audiobooks. So I'm gonna stick oh with God. this. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations on that kind of success and also just kind of seeing the signs of where the need was. Like you went yeah. into doing some voice acting and then all of a sudden you realize there's a greater opportunity for you and for others if you, you know, actually create a business around this. Yes, or, or, yes. I'd say actually create a business because voice acting is a business, but creating a business structure that can also help other voice actors. Is yes, what it was it was it was basically not just about me. I realized that it was better for me if I could help other people not have to wait 30 years to get lucky. You know, <laughs> was it challenging now going from just worrying about yourself to now, you know, helping producers and other voice actors try to get gigs and or, you know, line up the right kind of uh, opportunities? Well, again, I think the joy of, of, of this segment of the industry, unlike independent film production, is that the audiobook production business is not dependent on successful sales or distribution. We are delivering a product to Amazon, to um, Google Books, to Apple Music. We are delivering to these already um, mainstream distribution platforms. We don't have a Punch Audio distribution label. We have, we have titles that Punch Audio co-owns with authors, but we deliver through the mainstream. So I don't have to worry about, I mean, we can market, but I don't have to deal with the issues surrounding sales, delivery, collection, all of that, you see, which if you're an independent film person, you know, you, you better uh, because, you know, you're not going to get it. Even my big fat Greek wedding 20 years ago, which was a, the biggest independent hit since, you know, since the straw man in 1903, I don't know, uh, they had trouble collecting <laughs> because the theater wow. owners didn't bother to pay. I mean, why am I going to pay them? They're not making, wow. they're not United Artists. They're not MGM. They're not Warner Brothers. They're not giving me 10 movies next year. And they had to actually hire bag people to go out and say, hey, Leo, come wow. here. You know, yeah. Yeah, and that was I Tom Hanks. I had no Hanks. idea about that. Yeah, Tom Hanks yeah, that was a huge discovered move. that. But it was huge. It was absolutely huge. 
the 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 challenge came not in the the improbable uh, uh, triple of successfully developing, producing, and releasing to great success. The challenge came in collecting. So if I'm if I if I'm a, a short uh, starting a short hitter starting a small audio book production shingle that does not have to worry about collecting, that doesn't have to go out collecting. All my energy is just developing talent, finding people to work and, you know, um, who could work and eventually help thrive. You mentioned in particular that you're training these voice actors as well. Yeah. So in that, like, how do you help them find their voice? Is there challenges sometimes helping people understand how to utilize their voice? Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> Uh, two things come to mind working backwards. Number one, now, um, it's an industry that has always uh, cultivated new talent. And in, in certain arenas, new talent is, is perhaps more welcomed now than maybe a few years ago. Uh, rather like when I was referring to traditional voice acting, going to try to do those demos uh, that you see in commercials, that that work usually goes to the people who already do it. I, I've seen that dynamic change now. So there is a, um, there's more, there's more opportunity because there's a need. And of course, I think almost in everything, the, the uh, fee structure is almost going backwards. So uh, the, that when I, when I explain that part, I get about that far with, a young actor or perhaps an actor wanting to transition who hasn't hasn't done it yet. And I basically said, look, basically, if you're willing to work cheap, we can probably get you something. And you earn while you learn. You get a couple of credits. So when people type your name in on Audible, then you've got something. They can listen. And that person might be from Macmillan or Hachette or Simon & Schuster. And they're, everybody wants to be able to cast. And it doesn't mean that you have to speak you know, the Queen's English, it's your level. It's how do you communicate? And technically, if you can do it without making a lot of pops and squeaks and, you know, getting distracted because you literally, you know, you have to read 9,200 words an hour for several hours. Not We like to compartmentalize it. So anyway, you know, to me, it, I, it came very naturally how to help others get into it, uh, but uh, providing, and, and they said, how do I get into it? Uh, and first of all, what do I need to do to get started? And I say, you already done it. You've, you've just asked me the question. You're showing enthusiasm. And now go give me, go get four or five pieces of paper or something you can read from. Let one be a nonfiction. Let one be a fiction. Two or three minutes. I don't want to hear 10 minutes when I can tell in 30 seconds, most of the buyers that way. And we might be able to get you something. And we do a lot of independence. And independent authors really trust us. They have their own idea. But nothing makes me more satisfied as a, as a, as a producer, as a small business owner, uh, uh, for, when Punch Audio, when we get feedback from an author after sending them some casting samples saying, oh, they're absolutely great, or just what I envisioned in my head. Chris, the author wrote it. When the author reads... When the author hears their words read in the order that they were written, in the manner, style, tempo, and subtext that they were written, the author's overjoyed. So it's so easy. And it's not like I got to pull a rabbit out of a hat every, every moment. We send him a couple of people. 
but I have a good ear for uh, for a good ear for for talent. Well, what happens in those situations where, say, an independent author comes through and they want to read their own book and you're listening to them and you're like, ooh, they shouldn't be reading their own book. You know, How do you resolve those kind of situations? <laughs> you know, a funny, a funny sort of way you tell them that. But you do it in such a way that it's also couched with the, and I think uh, I was talking to Betsy about this uh, last weekend. It's, uh, it's, it's couched with the dual track that no one knows your story better than you do. So what are we now, yep. when, you, when you subtract that positive from, look, okay, are you sure? Okay, look, yes, I understand that you want to read this book. Um, where, when is it set? Oh, the time of Anne Boleyn, you know, sort of 1550. Oh, okay, and they don't even talk like that. And a great, and you're a history book. Yeah, I love it, I love it. But, you know, I'm a grant writer, I'm a... I'm a, I'm a lawyer, an attorney by trade. I said, and, and this was a, a lady who we, it's a good story. I go, well, yeah, but you speak well. Shouldn't it be a regency or a, a, a whatever it is, a, um, a Elizabethan era English voice? I mean, well, I don't think we can get Judy Dench. Who else do you want? We can get you, you know, <laughs> <laughs> we can get you Judy Buckingham or, um, or Mary Wells, and these are wonderful people. <laughs> and yes, they'll be reading it like, you know, um, and as Thomas Cromwell saw the king, he said, no, you will all go away. I mean, you know, okay, great. I said, why don't you come on over? Try it. Really? You really want to do it, don't you? She said, and I go, yeah. So she came in and, you know, chapter one, 1620, uh, Hampton Court, Thomas Cromwell, walked, you know, I mean, it was perfunctory, but it was clean. And once she got over the buy-in of the nerves, can I really do this? The sense of joy that she had easily matched the, matched the project. It was right for the project. On paper, it might not have been. It, was, it wouldn't be traditional casting. I probably wouldn't get an order like that from a retail publisher. But for an independent author who wanted to voice her own work, she has a tremendous love for the period. And she did a she did a fine job. She did a lovely job. And, you know, that was a great example of trying to say yes. I've spent most of my life as an actor, I mean, most of my life, my God, a huge majority, in situations where the ultimate answer, A, is that I'm not responsible, is no. Nay, hey, no can mean they liked you, but they went another way or, you know, the good thing about you is you can do comedy and drama. Not in my movie, you know. Okay, good. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and when I can say yes to someone who wants to do something, makes me feel in a way that I'm rewarding. <laughs> Maybe I'm trying to square one of those wrongs from years ago when people have said no to me. You know what I mean? Trying to even, trying to even the score. Mm -hmm. Life is about balance. A good, long, like happy, a good, yeah, long, happy life is about balance and trying to do good. And if you don't know how to do good, here you go, Chris. Just try not to do bad, okay? And then maybe what you're doing is okay. It's as simple as that. I mean, I got 400 pages in my book and probably 20 or 30 kind of revolve around that. It's, it's just the way to live. Well, and you were just talking, too, about the, the acting side and you, you know, acted for 30 years before getting into the voice acting and, and all that. 
And but you touched on something that has been of interest to me in Hollywood for a while, which is it seems like such a profession that can really beat down your mental health, your mental and emotional well-being, because it is a profession that's really predicated on judgment of others onto you, mm-hmm. um, whether it be, you know, the audience themselves or whether it be the casting mm-hmm. directors. And mm-hmm. so, you know, how as an actor, have you managed your mm-hmm. your mental and emotional well-being within that um, and, and maybe ways that maybe you help others as, as they're kind of entering into the profession? Well, number one, it's kind of you to say that there's a there's a there's a great likelihood that I haven't that I've gone mad, uh, you know. I don't know. Uh, uh, perhaps, perhaps I guess we'll find out by the end. You of this know, interview. I don't know. I'm doing. I feel okay. I think I look okay, but you know, I don't have a lot of friends. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Um, and the other and the other the likelihood is, you know, I think you got to be a little bit, you know, you, like you're, you're a. You're in effect looking for a cause, you know, you're like, you don't quite know how and what, but you just think that's what you want. And maybe it's because you, you saw Tom Cruise in Risky Business, or maybe it was like me, I saw Star Wars. And and then, of course, dropping out of college helps and not really, you know, being. I didn't like selling real estate when I was 18 years old. It just felt predatory. And. I, I addressed it, you know, I wrote I wrote my memoirs, my life stories, basically starting at here and going to Jordan Peele, God bless him, and there. But in between <laughs> is sort of a self-reverential, anything goes. And there was a recurring theme that I was really glad was there about exactly what you're saying. How easy it is to delude yourself. How easy it is to just let your life reduce to survival mode, to almost bare minimum before you, and you might never, you know, the old, there's, and, and I reduce it hopefully like everything to a bit of a joke as an old, uh, my old father-in-law would say, you know, um, the boy, the circus comes to town and the boy runs off to join the circus. And, um, you know, he comes back to town a year later and all his friends come back out. Hey, Ronnie's in the circus. Come along. There he is. No, no, that's the tiger. Right, there's the lion. No, there's a juggler. And, oh, there's the elephants. And there's old Ronnie. He's the last one in the line behind the elephants with a bucket and spade. He's shoveling up the old elephant dung, right? And they said, Johnny, Ronnie, what have you done? You were working at the off-license. You had a nice life. What have you done? You're out... You know what you're doing? You're shoveling shit behind an elephant. He goes, what? And give up show business. <laughs> you know, the uh, the rejection that comes, comes. Look, you're not going to succeed if you don't put yourself in the arena. I call it in the volume. Being in the volume is a result of my like 40 years. And it's, it's a technical term, you know. It. And if that's the name green, of the memoir as well, correct? Yeah, yeah. If you're in a green screen, in front of a green screen, you're going to be in the volume. Or if you're in a motion capture, you're going to be in the volume, which is a technical term for the shot. It also means if they don't need you, they're going to ask you to step out of the volume because they need the space, all right? Human nature needs the volume in order to survive. Action is inside the volume, all right? So what you do when you're outside of it is far more important than what you do inside. When you're inside, when you're between those magic words of action and cut, everyone else is quiet. Otherwise, they're asked to leave. You get to do your thing. When I'm recording in the booth, it's quiet. 
it's what we do everywhere else. And I think to be a successful actor starting out, you need to be two things. You need to be a good cook and you need to be a good driver because you can always, now with the gig economy, it's made it easy. You can always hustle up a few bucks <laughs> and you can always cook a, you know, you can always cook a, um, 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 uh, you know, a Bob's Big Boy breakfast like I did for years. So whatever, you know. So in order to survive as an actor, you really have to have skills that, that um, help you combat the, the rejection, I suppose, you know. How do you handle rejection? I was asked, and I answer it in the book. You don't. You, you suffer it. Hmm. There's a wonderful phrase I learned when I was going through my, my um, Phoenix Rising moment that in, in, the, in my early 30s. It took me a couple of years. In order to suffer the joys, you have to suffer the sorrows. And if you, you know, or I think Kipling said, um, if you can treat those two imposters with equal measure, you know what I mean? Great success and great failure. If you can treat those two imposters at equal measure, then you can get through, you know? And uh, in, in closing, which is the two happiest words in public speaking, um, if you're not getting the work or if you are getting the work and it doesn't satisfy you, it doesn't empower you, if you find yourself being grumpy, being mean or, you know, you know, maybe it's not. Maybe it's not for you. Hmm. You know? One of the things I heard you say, too, as you were talking about, you know, what you put in the book, in the volume, or in the memoir, in the volume, but also just in kind of your own life practice there, it sounds also like kind of compartmentalizing those failures. It's not about you. It's about what that director wanted. So maybe you did an excellent job, but that just wasn't what they had envisioned. And so yes, it's uh, yes, maybe taking it less personal. Yeah, but uh, uh, it's it's like it's like monopoly money uh, at, with great inflation. It's 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 you know maybe that's to me. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. If your takeaway is anything other than you booked the job, which is the American uh, way of of saying uh, people were getting paid. And the in in England, the English actors say I was offered a role, literal role, like they used to. Like here's your part was a role. They wasn't the whole script. It was somebody writing it. Here is your role, all right? <laughs> we call it booking. And to me, a booking is something you don't want your 22-year-old son to call you in the middle of the night and say, I've been booked because, you know, i got to go down to Venice and bail him <laughs> out. You know, I don't, want, I don't want to be booked. I want to be That's offered a, a role, you know? I don't want to be booked. So um, uh, I think, uh, what was the question? It was, um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I just took you back to Venice and, and bailing your son out sorry, of jail. Um. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, it's okay because I did actually want to ask you another question around like the acting side, like the yeah. balancing of your personal life, I feel like can be really, really tough with acting. These are random, I say random, yeah. but like the timing of, of when these gigs come up and I just feel like a, you might miss out on, on certain moments with your family and like, okay, what comes first, family or acting? Like how, I guess, how did you manage that? And or what were some of the pitfalls that you ran into trying to balance those two things? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I see these actors, these, you know, wonderful actors. It seems like they're always on a movie. They're always on location, you know, and, and, and um, it's funny. I didn't, I've never really wanted that. I've, I've enjoyed being able to uh, be, that's what the, the, the joy that um, the audiobook business gave me was that, that kept me, you know, in one place. Um, 
you know, the great takeaway from when we audition for a living, or as Orson Welles used to say, we act for nothing, they pay us to wait, is that, you know, <laughs> you're literally, and, you know, the last couple of years has driven m most all castings rather like this, remote. If I had a session with, um, a, 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 let's say, a Jordan Peele, like I'm having with you, Chris Colbert, he might spend five or ten minutes talking just like this. And then he's going to go away and say, yeah, I want him on my set, which is all an audition is. When you walk in, they give you these words, okay? And you think, if I get these words right, and if I get a laugh, or if I do something unique, or like in commercials, the dreadful phrase that says, put a button on it. And I go, but I'm not even wearing a shirt. What are you talking about? Come on. All of this <laughs> technical nonsense, it comes down to one thing. Do they want you on the set? And then do they need you on the set? You know, yeah, he's perfect for the part, but he's a real jackass. Eh, you know, it's okay. He's only there for a day or two. Or, you know, it might not, I, you know, he's in... We could go that way, a little different, but, you know, look at him. We trust him. That's why I've been with Spielberg three times. Uh, not that, you know, not that uh, he's calling me, expecting me to get going, but when my name comes up, he trusts me, you know? And that's not because I just read the words right. So when you go into these auditions and you get the words right, you do the thing, and I, you know, I've never walked out of an audition thinking I didn't get the job. I got it, I did great, how'd you do? Great, ah. You only know when wardrobe calls. When wardrobe calls once your sizes, they're getting paid for it, you know you got the job, okay? The great takeaway in this sort of in like monopoly money, inflated currency kind of feeling is after a while, the only thing that really matters is if wardrobe calls. And that's dehumanizing. That's demoralizing. And that's what you gotta, that's what you gotta be, be, that's what you gotta be aware of. And you can't fight it. You can't say, you know, uh, well, you know, you can. You can say, hey, I gave a really nice audition. I don't know if I gave a nice audition or not. I enjoyed it. They seemed to like it and said, okay, that's it. And you have to compartmentalize it. You're absolutely right. But you also can learn. You can take it with you. You know, there's this, um, the whirly gig of time. There's, you know, sometimes things happen that just stay with us. Why do they have to be just traumatic events or major lifestyle? I'll never forget the day I thought I lost my dog or whatever, you know. Whoa. Maybe it's still happening in some way in your consciousness or on some plane. And what a great tool for... Um, for a communicator, for an actor, for a writer, for a host, or to, to give today its due for a politician, if we can find some leadership qualities out there. What a great quality to have. That, that what I have done is informing what, what we have done is informing what we have yet to do because it's still happening. So what we learn from the times that, you know, we didn't book it and we associated not booking it with not succeeding, and when we were, our Western world, not succeed means one thing, it means fail, you know, what is this nonsense? Uh, second place is for losers and all this bit, and then that leads to giving kids uh, trophies for um, um, just showing up, and then and, and all of a sudden people are fighting over extreme positions, where all it is down the middle, folks, is, hey, are they having fun on the field? Is the coach intimidating them? 
Is the parent scaring the crap out of them? You know, and that's what it really matters. Stuff like that. So you have to treat yourself. You have to treat your inner child because, you know, if you lose that inner child, you're not an actor. It's Peter Pan stuff, you know. You never grow up. And it's living proof. The film and TV is there forever. Anyway, you started someplace and I ended up taking you to Yellow Brick Road. So there you go. (laughs) Oh, no, I love the tangents. I I think, you know, I I love everything you said there. And I I wanted to double back here because you were talking about family a little bit earlier on. And it reminded me that, you know, before we we hopped on here, we were talking a little bit about the comedy world. And, you know, I I really wanted to learn about, you know, your father who, uh, you know, may have had some ties to the comedy world, too. So can you tell me a little bit uh, about your father and his influence on you and and in particular, maybe some of these comedians that we might uh, share in common that we both love? Bottom line on my dad, he was a wonderful British actor, a unique named Wilfred Hyde White. He was born in 1903, and he said he had children every 30 years, and I was in his second crop, okay? He had a son when he was, like, 30, and he had me when he was 56, so fine. But he was, he was, his best, put it this way, his his closest friend, even though he's a, many years younger, was the great uh, chameleon actor Peter Sellers uh, in England. And Peter was a certified madman. I mean, you know, like Robin Williams. And just, but brilliant and fun personally was just a wreck, an absolute wreck. And my dad had some of those qualities. He managed it a bit better, but he, he was, when he was good and funny in a, in a performance, uh, his, his um, adrenaline and his ability to interact was like a magician. He could find moments. Person, so what I learned from my dad very quickly is how wonderful it is to be able to do that, but what a great toll it can take on you personally. And I sort of, I hope I live somewhere in between is all I could say. I mean, who knows? I'm going to go on here. I still am. So, and he was, and, and people, for one thing, he was very uh, easy to like. And prior uh, at the end of the, I think the last film dad did was Richard, uh, the, the toy, which was uh, Richard Pryor after he had had his accident. And it was a remake of a French film with Jackie Gleason, who was just a grumpy old sod by then. It was that example of, <laughs> I was thinking, I was saying, you know, if you find yourself not enjoying it and you're not Jackie Gleason, maybe you should get out. You know, ah, ah. I asked him, hey, it must be fun playing golf with Jack Nicholas because he had the Jackie Gleason Inverary Classic. And he goes, yeah, that's all right. Okay, sorry. Anyway, <laughs> awful, awful story in the book about my, my, my foray on the toy. Richard Donner gave me a part. Because anyway, about how Gleason stops a take and he puts the short pan. No, 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 all this nonsense. Anyway, Richard Donner liked my dad. And, um, you know, that was the era of sort of um, almost Dudley Moore, um, John Gielgud, Arthur, those sort of archetypal fish-out-of-water Englishmen. And all they had to be was eccentric and funny. And my dad was eccentric and funny. And uh, and I knew Rick, uh, I knew Richard Donner, wonderful director from my contract player days, because I guess I don't I think he was unmarried at the time and liked to hang around young actors. OK, and so not me, not actors some people we knew. I don't know. You know OK. And uh, so I knew Donner a bit. You know, he'd seen him around. Nice fella. They hired dad to bring him down to Louisiana as the chauffeur. He was going to be a Jackie Gleason's uh, chauffeur. He was hired to go and fetch the toy. 
who was Richard Pryor, to come and, you know, play with the kid. That lasted until the first day with the car. <laughs> and then they said, okay, Wilfred, you won't be driving this car. <laughs> <laughs> you forgot to get his license first. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> and not with the camera and uh, Richard. And, oh, yeah, right. But Richard and dad, Richard loved my dad. They was the same kind of personality. You know, and you see Richard up there on these, on these, these clips and you just see him knowing he can say and do whatever he wants. And he didn't care. That is a dangerous, that's nitroglycerin, very dangerous. My dad wasn't a stand-up comic by any means, but he was a wonderful light comedian. And um, just one of the great memories I have is when my dad pretty much retired soon after that. And at his 80th birthday party in 1983, probably about six or eight months after after that movie wrapped, Pryor came to his 80th birthday party, and so did Dudley Moore and... Richard was just the most quiet, humble man. It almost looked like he'd been shell-shocked or so, you know. But he was so nice. And it just seemed, you know, I I just couldn't envision a time in his life when he wasn't that way. I mean, I'm sure when he was younger, he was vibrant. And I know there was a recent portrayal of him in a film that I saw, which had him be, you know, kind of, eh, I don't know, kind of mean or... And I, I said, well, I hope he wasn't like that when he was younger. Uh, but he befriended my dad. And my dad befriended him. And they really had this bond that kind of only madmen can share, you know. And uh, <laughs> They truly was, understood each other. Yeah, yeah, no. And yeah, as they're in the world, okay, here comes the jello, you know. I inherited a lot of that. But um, I think I... I and a lot of it, I think, might have been substances, you know. In the early 60s, I remember there was this great, uh, there were pills going around, happy pills, sad pills, and mood things, you know. And now, and they, 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 they didn't used to call it uh, manic depression or anxiety disorder or mental illness. It was just, oh, man, the guy's, the guy's nuts or whatever, you know, and here's a medication. And I think that changes your body. It changes your chemistry. And... Um, but nothing can change who you are, providing you have enough um, people in your life and experiences in your life who sort of help you be you. And I saw that in, late in my dad's uh, life and career. He didn't change so much personally. He probably was still filled with anxiety, but he was probably never happier near the end of his career than when Richard Donner and Richard Pryor were happy to see him on the set. And he'd been doing it for over 60 years, you know? And I feel, I'm, that's, you know, yeah. that's, that's an that's incredible what, way to be sent off. Yeah. You know, that's kind of, that's, that's the lane that I like to, to be in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, that's an amazing story. I really appreciate you sharing that. Richard, yeah, they were, you know, Richard they, yeah. Pryor, one of my favorite comedians. I, I've gotten to work yeah. with his family before, but I never got to meet the man. So I'm very, oh, very right. jealous of that story for oh, so good. many different reasons. Yeah. He gave he um, gave my dad a I, flask. Also he th- gave him a flask. I guess they must have been they must have oh, shared what? a propensity for yeah. He gave him a silver Tiffany flask to W H W on his 80th birthday. Love Richard, and I still have it. The, the top's off, so they, they broke the top. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> you're just making me even more. You're just rubbing this in right now. You're just, just I know, grinding but it you in know, on me it's, here. 
it's like your first, it's like in your first anniversary, you know, you give each other a card and eat a piece of cake. Uh, when you're a young actor and you do your first movie, you usually exchange gifts with your co-star, and especially if it's a, if it's a buddy comedy like I did, and we both gave each other flasks without even knowing it. Why? Because we had a lot of night shoots and we were tired of the styrofoam cups. But it was neat to see the older actors. Actually, here's a flask. You know, okay. I love it. Yeah, it's the easiest job it. in the world. It's the easiest job in the world, and this is water. But it's the worst profession <laughs> to try to. It's the worst profession to try to to try to work in. You didn't have to qualify it with me. If that was straight tequila, I would have been. I would have been happy for you. I, I love me some tequila, a little whiskey. There we go. <laughs> well, I will just double back to you had just mentioned at the end of what we we're saying there. Just. Um, with, you know, kind of keeping people around you to help keep you grounded. I think that's just important as well, whether you be an actor or whatever you're doing in your profession. And I say grounded in the ways of just kind of reminding you to take care of yourself, reminding you of, you know, who you are. I think it's important from all those different aspects. So I really appreciate you saying that. I think it's, it's valuable information for any entrepreneur or freelancer, whether they're an actor or not. Oh, I'm so impressed. I mean, the, the, this is the, the age of um, in the gig economy of, of small business. I'm so impressed when I see uh, I saw a commercial. Some, some guy created a watch in Los Angeles, and it's like a white watch with a thing and a thing. And I go, okay, I mean, that looks good. But hi, I'm so-and-so CEO of, you know, Just Now Watch Company. And I'm thinking, wow, okay, that's a very well-produced commercial, and the guy created a watch company. And I, and I immediately think, well, we got a lot of watch companies. And then I immediately think, well, somebody likes this fella because he's got himself a big commercial on his thing. And go to my website. And you know, this is the world that we're in. It, it's it's so niche. It's so small markets. Yep. You know, mm-hmm. it, it it and it's happened with television. I mean, television has exploded. There's more content than ever, but it's harder than ever to find. Yeah, you know, they're serving like you were just saying. It's serving these niche audiences yeah. a lot of times. Yeah, yeah. And so my well, niche, and, my, my niche audience for a audiobook producer is the independent author. Somebody who has had the courage and the technique and the uh, patience to write their story. And now we will help you take it into audio. And that's, you know, you end up working with a small group of people who are really happy. It's kind of like it's the same thing again. They're happy, you know, they're happy to talk to me or I'm happy to have them in my world on my set, as it were, you know. Well, I think that's a perfect segue. I, we always like to leave time at the end to talk about, you know, what are the wins? And that wins can be, you know, personal stuff. It can be business stuff like Punch Audio or the new memoir in the volume. Um, so, yeah, let us know some of the wins that are happening for you right now. Well, working backwards, it's a, a tremendous sense of accomplishment um, getting my book published. And uh, uh, we just missed you because uh, my wonderful producer for the for the book, Betsy uh, Schuller, lives in New York and... Uh, and uh, she brought me to you, and we were so hoping to come and see you at your Times Square studio. Uh, but uh, the dinners were very expensive, and the hotels weren't cheap either. And it's, it takes a couple <laughs> of days uh, because that's really what it is. You see, I'm I'm uh, I'm not a celebrity. I'm not a star. I am who I am, and I've written my forty-year Hollywood history. And. It is not just the <clears throat> the peaks and valleys, uh, the wins and losses, the uh, the rehab or lack of rehab, like so many, and rightly so, so many stars' bios that have come out these days seem to be marketed on one or two issues. And it's what they're famous for. That's fine. You know, my kind of claim to 
comic book infamy is that I was uh, the I was a, a comic book character in a film that uh, that never got released. And you go, what kind of story is that? And you say, well, it was actually Reed Richards in the Fantastic Four. And people go, oh yeah, that was you. And niche market. There's more people who know the Fantastic Four and that 1994 Roger Corman ill-fated story and my part in it than do about that fella's watch company that I saw last night, (laughs) you know. And I can sit back always lamenting, yeah, you know, that was a misfire. What would have happened if? Imagine if that movie would have been released and vilified and I never worked. I mean, it never, you know, there's a whole story there that happened. So compartmentalizing, which is the word that you've reminded me of today, in a chronological way, and thank thank the Lord we've got IMDB these days, which is a chronicle of actors' works, because I could start with, oh yeah, I was in that and in that, and I could sort of give a linear chronology to my life, and then informed it. And I never really knew that I was a philosopher. I never really knew that I was a writer. I never really knew that I, that I could be a motivator. I, I don't know. I was just an actor trying to book a job for 40 years. And I sat down over two and a half years and I just wrote these stories. And some of it takes place in Yucca Valley out in the desert with a bunch of lunatics near the Marine base when I was 12 years old because my grandpa lived there. And he says to me, so what do you think you want to do with your life? I was probably about 16 and and it it was 1975. Oh, I don't know. I said, probably go to Vietnam. Oh, I don't think you want to do that, he said. Okay? <laughs> now, that's, that's, a, that's my life. That's not Alex Hydewhite, the actor. That's not the celebrity teller. That's, that's anybody. That's you with your grandpa or Betsy with her family in Ohio. That's something that everybody should have joy or sorrow or whatever it is. And everybody has a right. Everybody is, has a privilege to tell those stories. So I found myself being on the supply side of what I do as an audiobook producer. I was the, I was the, the writer and the author. And it was just a, um, a, a tremendous release in a way. If you tell your stories and chronicle them and put them out, the great joy is you don't have to, you can still tell them, but you don't have to try to remember them anymore. And whatever ancillary residual garbage is around them, it's gone now. It's like, you know what, is it, what, what do they say? When the, um, when the truth becomes the myth, you print the myth. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but if you get a chance, I think you'd like it, Chris. You're, um, you, you, uh, uh, it seems that you're cut from the same cloth a bit. The, uh, the willingness to, to risk and ho- hopefully the, uh, the ability to recognize how you can improve your chances. That's all, you know. And I never thought that uh, I was a philosopher, a writer, or a motivator. And um, I hope that people, I'm getting some nice feedback when people say, hey, this is a book that act, that all young people should read or drama students. Again, okay, but it's not a treatise on what not to do as an actor. It's just my life. And yep. in that world, you know, if Buzz Aldrin writes a book, it's going to be about when he set foot on the moon which is great. It's going to be hard for people to take much interest in when he almost crashed or whatever you know his life was or whatever he's overcome. But if it's not Buzz Aldrin, if it's Buzz Wilson, my life, uh, my life in space, 
you're going to go along for the journey. And you're, you're going to have your own little things. It might be Pretty Woman. It might be in, 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 with Elaine May in the Moroccan sand. It might be Fantastic Four. It might be one of the first Uber and sidecar drivers in Santa Monica. It might have been, you know, I mean, take your pick. It's all there. Well, the beauty of a memoir is, yeah, you're going to find the little nuggets that relate to your own life. And you're going to be able to, if, if want, it's not, you know, if have, it's, yeah, if it's not front loaded with expectation, you yes. see? Thank you for being so open and raw with that, you know, of your own life. That's not an, you know, an easy thing to do to, to just open yourself up in that way. So I think it's really important that you do that. But also, thank you for doing that. Well, I wish I could have said that. It would have saved you a lot of airtime. But fortunately, this isn't film. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It, um, <laughs> it, 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 it really freed. It was freeing to do it. But it, but it doesn't it, it it I don't think it comes off as boy this guy needed to get something out I mean they're funny stories uh, I, I name them they're episodes instead of being chapters they're episodes and it's separated into five seasons so I thought hey wait a minute this could be a TV series it's kind of funny Mola and all over the place Warren Beatty telling me not to get married and I go Warren that hurts coming from you I mean things like that. <laughs> Well, I'm really looking forward to reading it. Uh, I didn't know, know at the time he might have been having a, have, he, might, he was trying to pick up my girlfriend. I didn't really realize that at the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, let everybody know where they can find the book so they can hear that story. Uh, uh, but also, you know, social media, website, anything for people to follow and stay up to date with what you're doing. Well, I have a very difficult name, but hopefully um, it, you know, it's got an A and an X and a hyphen, alexhydewhite.com. My friends call me Punch, and that's a real middle name. And, you know, um, Amazon, I just, I'm a mainstream guy when it comes to distribution. You don't, some, some of the authors we work with, no, I don't want to distribute through Amazon. And then I go, okay, well, then this is not going to be a royalty deal. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> I'm not asking you to go to my website and buy the book. It's Amazon. It's, it's, I want this to be easy. It's Amazon. It's uh, uh, Audible for the audio book. Um, I live at alexhydewhite.com. YouTube is a great place to see clips, IMDb. But um, I, I would really, um, I'd really enjoy hearing from your, your listeners and your viewers uh, if they've had any reaction, should they stumble upon the book or if they can contact me through the website, we can give them what we call a free download code for the audio book. So, you know, we, we, like, we like a low, uh, a low bar to entry or if, if it's called, you know, low, yeah. Doing it for the people. I like it. <laughs> Go figure. Thank you, Alex Hyde-White, for joining us on Entrepreneur Struggle. And thank you for listening. You can learn more about Alex's work by going to our show notes. Thank you to my producers, Heather Johnson, Ryan Woodhall, and Mike DuBose. And until next episode, stay safe and healthy because the struggle is real. 